This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 4th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Chris Larson talks about building stretchy, glowing robot skin. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a rampant amphibian-killing fungus. This fungal disease has been blamed for the extinction of hundreds of amphibian species, not just animals, but actual species. How does a fungus kill, say, a frog? So this fungus causes a disease called chytrid, and it kills the frogs and salamanders and other amphibians by destroying their skin. It also disrupts their immune system and causes heart failure. It's been blamed for a massive die-off. But not all frogs die when infected with this fungus. There are some species that seem to tolerate it, like the Japanese tree frog. But researchers have noticed a surprising difference between infected and uninfected animals, including their mating calls. What's this all about, Dave? So the idea is if the fungus doesn't kill all of these animals, could it be having other sort of what are called sublethal effects? And that was sort of the point of the new study was to figure out, you know, in amphibians, in this case specifically frogs that are infected with the fungus, what other effects is the fungus having on the population besides just killing the animals? So what the researchers did was they looked at 42 male Japanese tree frogs. And one of the things they looked at in these frogs were their mating calls. These frogs make these calls to attract females. And here's an example of what a normal mating call sounds like. But what the researchers noticed, which was what was really interesting, is that the frogs that were infected with this chytrid 
fungus. The infected males were slightly larger than the uninfected males, but their call was also different too. It was faster and longer, and you can hear a sample of that here. What's interesting about a faster, longer call is actually that female frogs find that call, for lack of a better word, sexier. <laughs> so <laughs> somehow the fungus is actually making the frogs more attractive, and it also seems to be sort of taking control of their behavior. Hence our headline, Fungus Turns Frogs Into Sexy Zombies. <laughs> is this really zombification, or could their impending death, because they do have slightly shortened lives if they're infected, lead these frogs to kind of increase their reproductive attempts? Well, that's an open question. Is the fungus making the frogs have these sexier calls or are the frogs just sort of making their calls sexier because they know they're not going to live as long? But the end product is still the same because if these frogs are attracting more females, then they're passing more of the fungus on to more females. And therefore, the fungus is able to spread better within the population. Is this really a bad thing if the fungus is helping them reproduce more and it's not killing them? Well, again, scientists think that even if this fungus doesn't kill these animals, it can have these sub-lethal effects. It can make them sick. It can have other sort of deleterious effects on them. So even though it's not killing them, it could actually still be having some problematic effects in terms of the population, still could be reducing the number of amphibians that are out there. Next up, we have a story on modeling a universe fit for life. I think we've touched on this idea before on the podcast. It's not a good idea to have a lot of close galactic neighbors. The danger is these massive cosmic explosions called gamma ray bursts, which can kill off life on habitable planets. Okay, so those things are bad, and it's good that we are where we are, right now, not too close to any near galactic neighbors. But that leads cosmologists to ask big questions like, why are we where we are? This relates to the cosmological constant. Why don't you take this part, Dave? Well, so we know that the universe is expanding. Sort of how we measure this is, is known as the cosmological constant. What's really interesting about the constant is we really don't know, you know, it's a specific number, really don't know why it is the number it is, but we do know that basically the universe is slowly expanding. It's not static, but it's not expanding so fast that everything is basically just sort of falling apart. So it's this specific number. We don't know why it's this number. And this study sort of applies something known as the anthropic principle or sort of an investigation of the anthropic principle to try to figure that out. All right, so one more bit of vocab here. What is the anthropic principle? Well, it's sort of this idea that in some sense, the universe is fine-tuned for us. In other words, the universe is here because we're here to observe it. This idea that, you know, for some reason, everything that's happened in the universe or a lot of what we know about the universe, for some reason, it's the way it is because it needs to be that way in order for life to be here. And it's a bit of a controversial concept. But this idea of the cosmological constant feeds into that a little bit because, again, it seems to be this number where if this number was too high or too low, we wouldn't have life. And in this study, the researchers wanted to know how much the cosmological constant 
could wiggle around the value that it has now and, and how that would impact the universe's density and therefore the risk of life being scoured away from any habitable planet by gamma ray bursts. How did they try to, to tackle this problem? Well, they ran some simulations of the universe and they used a variety of different cosmological constants and they tried to see how those different constants affected the universe's density. And they paid particular attention to what it meant about gamma ray bursts raining down radiation on stars and planets. And it turns out that our universe seems to get this constant just about right. Because if it was any lower, a lot of these planets and systems would be getting exposure to a lot more gamma ray bursts. You'd have a lot more sterilization and a lot less potential life. But it's small enough that it allows the universe to expand slowly enough that you're able to form things like hydrogen burning stars, which you also need for life to exist, or at least we think. Getting back to the principle of the thing here, the researchers are modeling different universes and only changing one variable, the cosmological constant. But we don't know what has determined the value of the cosmological constant. So if it changes, might not something else have to be different as well? Well, we have to be careful about just focusing on this one constant and saying, well, this one constant is this very specific number, and this very specific number allows there to be life, so clearly their universe must be sort of designed for life or for us. But that sort of ignores the idea that there's a whole lot of other factors involved, and maybe if the cosmological constant was a much bigger or a much smaller number, maybe something else would be out there compensating for it. So, you know, as critics say, uh, you have to be careful about cherry picking just specific variables and saying, well, this variable is just right for life, while sort of ignoring a lot of other variables that could also play a role. Lastly, we have a story on ancient viral DNA inside people. <laughs> I really like this number from the story. We are as much as 8% virus, well, at least in terms of our DNA. There are actually up to 100,000 pieces of viral DNA interspersed in our genomes. How did it get there? Well, it got there because of a type of virus known as a retrovirus. Now, retroviruses have a genome that's made of RNA, but when these viruses infect cells, they turn that RNA into DNA, and that DNA can integrate into the cell's DNA. And the reason these viruses do that is because if the viruses can take over our cell's genome, by inserting their own DNA, they can force the cell to do what they want. And in this case, usually it's just to produce a lot more virus. But what would happen is if this DNA integrated into, say, sperm or egg cells, if this viral DNA got into sperm or egg cells, this DNA can get passed down from generation to generation. And scientists think that these so-called endogenous retroviruses have been inserting themselves into our genomes for potentially millions of years. And is this viral DNA that's embedded in our genome, is it doing anything? I mean, some functions have been discovered at this point, right? Right. Well, so that's been the open question. What is this, you know, what some people call fossil DNA doing? Is it is it really just like a fossil where it's sort of sitting there and not doing anything? Or is it having effects? And there's some suggestion that it can have negative effects. For example, this DNA disrupts other genes or causes perhaps cells to replicate out of control, then you can have things like cancer. But there's also some suggestions that it may be important for pregnancy, that some of these endogenous retroviruses are important for the function of the placenta, that they may even protect 
the developing embryo from infection, but all that has been pretty speculative and there hasn't been a whole lot of hard evidence for what these endogenous retroviruses are actually doing inside of our body. And now this latest study looks at how these very old viruses might be helping our immune system. How did they try to figure that out? Well, the researchers scanned a bunch of different human cell lines and they were looking for these endogenous retroviruses and they actually found quite a few. And what they did next was they used a technology called CRISPR, which I think we've talked about in the podcast before. These are sort of like molecular scissors that helps you cut out certain pieces of DNA. And they removed some of these endogenous retroviruses from the genomes of these cells. And what they found is that the cells that had had the viral DNA removed were much more susceptible to infection and especially attacks by other viruses. Sometimes it's not easy to ask why about evolution and genetic questions, but this does show that these aren't just little parasitic pieces of DNA anymore, that they have a function. Is that why we still have them? Yeah, I mean, the idea is is that they are kind of as much a part of us as we are, and they actually played a very important role in our evolutionary history. If you can imagine, if they really are important for defending us, maybe against other viruses, potentially lethal viruses, then we might not be here today if it wasn't for these viral aliens in our DNA. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a plant that eats sand to make itself too gross for animals to eat. (laughs) Also a story about water skiing beetles that has a nice video to go along with it as well. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a gene sequencing technology is sparking a patent fight that's been shrouded in mystery. Also a story about why Brazil is building a snazzy new research station in Antarctica. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Graham is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Why make soft robots? For one, they're lighter than solid, rigid robots. More importantly, they are safer for humans to interact with. But there are many challenges to building soft robots. For example, with so many soft, stretchy parts, they can't have an integrated, rigid screen for displaying information. Chris Larson and colleagues are working on a new kind of robot skin that can act as an output display in these contexts. You know, in this paper, we present a new electronic skin that can emit light and sense pressure under extreme deformations. So to give you an idea, you know, when you stretch this device along one direction, it emits light up to strains of nearly 500%. In our lab, we, we work in the field of soft robotics, and in soft robotics, the goal is to replace many of the rigid components that you find in traditional robots with soft, low-elastic modulus materials, either to add functionality or simply to make human-robot interaction more safe. In this work, we introduce a new skin that we can overlay onto these robots and have them retain their electric functionality while the robots uh, strain. So much of robotics these days is based on animals. We have robotic snakes, robotic cockroaches. Is there an animal model that you're using in this research? This work definitely draws inspiration from biology. In particular, we're interested in mimicking the functionality of cephalopod skin. So a great example of a cephalopod would be an octopus. You can think of octopus skin as being highly deformable, but also being able to actively uh, change its appearance uh, to do things like camouflage itself as well as communicate. 
So what are some of the problems that you're solving with this glowy, stretchy skin? Like the same thing that the octopus does, communicate and uh, be able to squeeze down real tight and get real big? In this paper, our goal is basically a system that mimics both the light emitting capability as well as those mechanical capabilities. And so although we don't replicate the mechanism of light emission directly, we do replicate their ability to undergo extreme shape changes while emitting light, and that's a major step. Why is this a need here, but say in hard body robots, why is this not a concern? In rigid robotics, you have basically an infinite set of electronic components that you can use. If you want to achieve some of the same functionality with a soft system, you need to basically develop new electronic systems that can be embedded into those soft bodies. One of those things is visual displays, and um, that's kind of the area that this paper addresses, is how do you embed a visual display into the soft robot and still have it function mechanically, but also electrically. And how do these pieces work together? Does the skin glow when you stretch it? Does it also sense when it glows? Or how, how do all these different components work together? Yeah, so one of the things that we try to do with this paper is have both a sensing capability as well as a light emitting capability in a single package. The system that we use is zinc sulfide. This is a display technology that was developed back in the 1950s. It's used in things like car dashboards and exit signs. If you compare it to an LED system, LEDs emit light by basically you have recombination of electron hole pairs when you apply a voltage across an interface called the PN junction. In our system, we have that same junction, but the difference is that those PN junctions actually exist naturally within the material. And that allows us to essentially have a powder that's electroluminescent, and we don't have to explicitly pattern those, those PN junctions in a clean room. And so we can use a powder, and that allows us to create this elastomeric powder composite, which is very easy to integrate into the soft robotic skin. On the sensing side, we essentially have a parallel plate capacitor. The capacitance change in a parallel plate capacitor is proportional to the area of the electrodes divided by the distance between them. And so when you change the shape of that capacitor, you get a corresponding change in capacitance, and we um, exploit that to measure pressure. One of the cool things we definitely demonstrate in this paper is its ability to decouple uh, different pressure sources. So those could be either from the underlying pneumatic chamber being inflated or external sources such as human touch. In the paper, we show that both of those can be decoupled. Perhaps even more interestingly is we find that the capacitance of individual sensors is highly sensitive to inflation of the underlying pneumatic chamber, but highly decoupled from the surrounding chambers. And so on our simple three-chambered robot, we were able to determine the physical state of the system using only those three capacitive measurements. And we think that, you know, this strategy can be scaled to systems that involve more complicated architectures that have higher number of actuators and higher number of sensors. The robot that you worked with in the paper has three chambers. Can you describe the locomotion and, and how those chambers work to move the softbot around? Yeah, definitely. These pneumatic actuators kind of work on a, um, a principle where you have a structure with an internal chamber. And then on the bottom of the structure, you put a strain limiting layer such that the bottom cannot uh, stretch and then on the top, you, you don't have a strain limiting layer. And so when you impressurize that chamber, the top can stretch and the bottom can't, and that creates a natural bending motion. 
For example, on a quadruped, you could have four of these chambers. Each leg would have one chamber, and that would constitute four legs that you could you know, achieve walking locomotion with. And when I looked at the video that you have, it really looks like it looks like a disco ball because each each chamber is glowing a different color as it moves. Is that what's going on there? Yeah. So, well, we actually just uh, stuck three different colors on each of the respective chambers just to show that you can have a three color palette system, which is important if you want to use it as a, as a display. There's a couple things going on there, though. When you actuate uh, one of the chambers, you're getting a lot of stretching in the in the upper layer of the skin, and that actually compresses that layer. As it turns out, our system is actually electric field driven. So as you as you stretch that layer, it actually is compressing along its thickness, and it's actually increasing the, the luminescence as you stretch. And so it gets brighter as you actuate, and then when you deactuate, it becomes less bright. Well, the goal here, though, is to have it read as a display. So you need to have something you know, that separated it from the, the movement of the machine in order to have it signal information unrelated to the fact that it's walking, right? Yes, definitely. I want to step back for one second. And can you describe what this robot looks like? I said it looked like a disco, but that's not really, that's not really accurate. What would you say it looks like? So our robot looks like a a small little rectangle, essentially. Most of the special sauce is on the inside of the robot, in which you have this pneumatic chamber that you can't really see from the outside. And then on the skin, you have this very thin layer of electroluminescent skin on the top of the robot. It kind of looks like a cell phone that's made out of silicone, and you can stretch it a lot. Right. And it kind of, would you say it worms along as it glows? Yeah, it crawls. It, this this crawls. I wouldn't call it a bipedal robot because it's not two legs per se. It's really just crawling. It's really like if your sandwich came alive and started crawling away from you. That is a glowing. yeah. That's a great picture right there. Yes. <laughs> okay. One of the things you mentioned is that this display is twice as strainable as other displays. Why is the amount of stretching important? And and what about these different kinds of stretches that you show, you know, rolling and pinching and, and pulling along like one particular axis? The primary advantage of being able to stretch up to about 480% strain for our case is that you can incorporate it into a soft robot and have it function while the robot actuates. And that's what we explore in the paper. If you want to kind of place, you know, the mechanical capability of our display in the context of other deformable displays, you can kind of make three different categories. One would be a rich, rigid display in which you have a basically a glass substrate on top of which you basically print electronics, and that's not flexible or stretchable at all. Next, you would have a flexible display in which you still have a rigid substrate, but that rigid substrate is very, very thin, say two or 300 microns thick, and that actually allows it to bend just as a sheet of paper you know, could bend. So it's rigid, but it can still bend because it's thin. Stretchable displays are fundamentally different in that both the substrate and the active electronics are all inherently stretchable. And that gives it the ability to kind of almost arbitrarily deform. And we kind of try to highlight that in the video, as well as in figure three, where we show it being folded and rolled and conformed to arbitrary surfaces. How easy is this to make? You mentioned that the important junctions arise naturally during the production of the material. So is it something that you can 3D print or that someone can make, you know, manufacture scale? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Right now, you know, for this paper, we, we essentially use a fabrication techniques that uh, is used for soft robotics, which is a very simple molding technique in which you essentially 3D print a negative of the part that you desire, and then you use it as a mold for the final part. And we use the same exact process for our display so that we can integrate it directly into the skin of this soft robot. But 
3D printing does offer some distinct advantages in our system, depending on what your end application is. Without spoiling some of our current efforts, I'll just say that you know our system is pretty compatible with a number of different fabrication techniques outside of replica molding, and some of those include some of the 3D printing methods that are out there. Far down the road, how does this stretchable display fit in with everyday life? Are we wearing watches made out of this suit, made out of this stuff? You know, complete skin suits. What what could this do? You know, the potential for our system as a wearable device is, is pretty interesting, I think. If you look at current wearable technology, it largely consists of rigid electronic components that have been miniaturized to fit on the body. But there's also a, an emerging class of epidermally mounted devices that conform to the skin. And right now, those, those primarily consist of passive sensors that measure things like glucose level and heart rate. But in the future, they might also include active electronic components that consume more power, such as displays. So our system falls more into the latter category of epidermally mounted electronics, I think mostly because its usefulness really lies in its ability to stretch and conform. But with that said, I think a more near-term application might be a rubber band-like arm sleeve that you know displays basic information such as text over a larger surface area that you can have with a smartwatch, but also that maintains a reasonable form factor. You know, this thing can fit over over your arm. So that's one of the more, I guess, convincing uh, use cases right now that isn't as far away in terms of feasibility. I wanted to circle back to your mention at the outset about, you talked a little bit about how soft robotics is being explored for safety with interacting with people. Does what you're doing here relate to that, or is that just a more general reason behind soft robotics? Yeah, that's a more general reason behind soft robotics. Um, right now, a lot of the robots that are used are actually very unsafe for humans to be around. Um, in the future, we, we hope to change that. And one of the one of the paths towards that goal is definitely soft robotics, where you have you know inherently stretchable materials that uh, won't harm humans. For our system, what we're trying to do is essentially incorporate electronics into these systems so that they can you know have increased functionality. Right now, they simply have mechanical functionality. We'd like to also add electronic uh, functionality, and one of those things, obviously, is uh, being able to display things. And how useful is being able to sense things to these kinds of systems, too? Very, very. Uh, certainly for human-robot interaction, um, if the robot can sense that it's touching a human, uh, certainly that's a good thing in terms of safety. So, yeah. Chris, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks a lot for having me. Chris Larson is a Ph.D. student at Cornell University. He and his colleagues write about stretchy displays in this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.